Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. My guest this week is Barry Clogan, Chief Product Officer at Winshop, a US software company and technology platform that helps grocery retailers do e-commerce and to do it well. Barry himself, as you will hear, is not from the US. He's from Ireland, but he's been out in the US for several years now and knows that market incredibly well. He also knows lots of other international markets very well, not least through his time at Tesco, where he headed up the international online grocery business for several years. So Barry has a really interesting retailer's perspective to share on online grocery. So we talk about online grocery after COVID and what to make of the fall in online grocery customer numbers recently, how the cost of living crisis is likely to affect shopper appetite for online shopping and willingness to pay for delivery, and the rapidly changing role and dynamics of last mile and rapid delivery operators within the grocery sector. Enjoy the show. Barry, welcome to The Pick List. Thank you for being my guest. My pleasure. We are recording this on Wednesday, the 25th of May, 2022. What are you up to this week? What's keeping you busy? I am, uh, so as the Chief Product Officer of Winshop in the uh, online grocery space, which, um, as I joke, sometimes has kind of become uh, sexy overnight, Um, I'm continually working with my team and with our retailers to try and drive innovation, to understand what are the kind of key challenges within their business, what are the key outcomes that they're looking for as they figure out what their online grocery strategy looks like, um, especially probably in the post kind of COVID uh, phase and how do they, how do they take the lessons they've learned over the past year and two, um, you know, and and use that to, to drive the longer term strategy for their business. I'm so interested that you were just talking about um, looking at the post-COVID strategy because I feel so much of the recent discussion around online grocery has been coloured by that experience of the pandemic, that you know, massive move to online initially and now more recently we're hearing you know, slightly more sobering figures in terms of people perhaps churning out of some of these services, returning to stores and all of that. What's your sense from you know, the work you're doing, the clients you're talking to, around how much of this COVID online boost is going to prove permanent and how much is just going to go away again? First of all, I'm less concerned and I guess maybe less surprised by, you know, a a natural softening, we'll call it, in in demand or sales. That's that's only to be expected. It's, you know, it's going to be practically impossible, in my opinion, to, to lap 2020 and 2021 in terms of that level of adoption and sales. And, and, you know, I know in retail, we're only as good as our, you know, our last numbers, but I think that we have to be realistic and prag- pragmatic about, uh, about the, uh, the demand. First and foremost, you know, if you think about the positives here, right, the positives is we've 
you know, consumers have adopted. Uh, participation has gone up within an online grocery business. Within, you know, it's, it, I'm going to talk about this from a grocer's perspective. So, as participation of their overall sales online, that has that has increased. That's only a positive in my mind in terms of investment in the area, innovation in the space, excitement in the business in the in the overall business, driving you know like for like benefit in the overall business. So if your online business is growing, you're driving like for like benefit in your overall business, which in an on you know in a grocery business is hard. So I'm I'm very encouraged by the adoption from consumers um, and and that opportunity for grocers to be more innovative going forward. The natural softening of it is, is, is understandable. And the key challenge always with online grocery has been acquiring the right customers. Now, you know, it's like shooting fish in a barrel, maybe for the last 22, you know, 24 months in particular, in terms of acquiring customers. But as we emerge from this, what the you know, true underlying health of an online grocery business is really your loyal base. And one of the key pieces to that is, you know, how you acquire the right customers, who's got the propensity to become an online shopper. You know, we know that from experience that you've got to shop three times to really, you know, love the service or to become a more loyal shopper. We know that we have a lot of churn and from first time shoppers. And that's only got worse with, you know, the, the massive venture capital funds that are in the business around rapid, rapid uh, and quick commerce space, because they're funding their acquisition of customers through venture capital money to, to drive valuations. And that, in my mind, is a false bottom. So as we come out of this for grocers who are in this particular space, um, I, think, I think there's very, very a lot of positives in, the, in a better baseline in the business, a bigger baseline in their business, an opportunity to kind of reset uh, get clear in terms of the strategy, get clear in terms of the shopping missions you're solving for, the consumer segments you're, sh you're solving for, um, and you know the metrics that are most important in your business. And here in the UK, as you will know, there's so much focus at the moment on the cost of living crisis and really trying to make sense of how shopper behavior is going to change as inflation goes absolutely through the roof. What does that debate or that conversation look like in the US and how does it color the conversation around online grocery? Well, I mean, online grocery is, it's a channel for you know, for me as a grocer, it's a channel I'm offering my consumers. So I'm still offering, in my opinion, I'm still offering the same proposition and I'm still obsessed or maniacal about the same kind of key strategic pillars, whether it's offering value for consumers, offering convenience, you know, improving loyalty and doing so in a profitable way. So online is, is a reflection of that uh, for a from a grocer's perspective anyway. So yes, you're right. Inflation is going to, in my opinion, drive and, and is, right? We're seeing this already, is driving more attention um, to the value that's being surfaced for retailers. Now, that again, it, it, you know, as we look for kind of positive thre threads here, if I'm a, a, a grocer today in my um, in, in the UK as an example, or in the US, and I have a solid online grocery business, and I'm conscious and, and focused on delivering value to consumers, surfacing personalized promotions, personalized recommendations, offering value in terms of the proposition, the tiered pricing architecture of the service fee. I've got an opportunity vis-a-vis -vis the, you know, the, the, fat, the, the, the rapid delivery providers or the, you know, the incumbents in the space who don't have the same supply chain sophistication, don't have the same buying power, and don't have the same ability to, to maybe drive margin from their own private labor products. So again, I think there's opportunities uh, for, for grocers in that space. But you know, I, I, ultimately, the inflation piece, in my mind, is going to create an opportunity for your your 
bread and butter grocer as opposed to the the, the incumbents in the space and the rapid delivery providers who are who are um, going to going to struggle. Do things like um, delivery fees play into this when consumers become very budget conscious? Is this idea of potentially having to pay to have your groceries delivered, does that become a potential barrier in your experience? I think so. I mean, I, and I think the, you know, the solution mix or the proposition mix of offering curbside or offering nominated next day delivery or more flexibility in terms of uh, the windows, the delivery windows you're offering, um, again, are, are opportunities. Um, you know, as an example, if it's, if it's in the US in particular, a lot of retailers and the kind of the bar have been set by Walmart and, and Kroger where pickup is free, is free. So that's not necessarily a deterrent for, uh, for consumers today. And it is a challenge for other grocers who may want to charge for that and to justify that charge. For delivery, the, what it creates is maybe is opportunities around, you know, longer slots and, and you know, as work-life balance changes or remote working, you know, is, is here to stay. You know, maybe consumers are not as focused on having delivery within a, you know, a 1 to 2 p.m. window and maybe anytime after 1 and before 5 is acceptable. And, and therefore, you know, you pay for that level of convenience or that level of urgency that you're looking for. Absolutely. Now, I've already chucked you straight into the nitty gritty um, of online grocery and delivery, because we're going to talk a lot about online grocery and about last mile delivery today. And this is not going to come as a surprise to anyone who's familiar with your career path. E-commerce, online grocery has been a very, very big focus for you for some time, including during your time at Tesco. I just wonder where that interest in online grocery came from. Did you make a deliberate choice to make that your specialism? Um, I did not, no. Um, I, um, I've, I've spoken to many different mentors in the past and, and none of which really ever told me they had a five-year plan. Um, I, was, I worked for Tesco in Asia, in Shanghai, which was, which was great fun. Uh, I was involved in setting up their first general merchandise online business with Alibaba, which in my mind, this is back, this is a long time ago now at this point, but in my mind, it was like peering into the future. You could see how, you know, generations behavior, consumer behavior had changed and it skipped generations in terms of adoption from a, in a Chinese perspective. Rapid delivery, even then was, you know, was, was more prominent and the, how people paid for it and uh, the different propositions online. Um, so I was in Tesco, I was doing, a, I was rolling out convenience stores um, and we didn't really have the right proposition for our convenience stores. We couldn't get the assets to get the physical locations. We couldn't rent at the right price. We didn't necessarily have the, the right pack sizes, the right assortment. You know, we couldn't compete in probably what is probably the most competitive market in the world. Um, and so when that project came to an end, uh, I was asked to get involved in, in, in the online piece. And then I, that kind of graduated into an online grocery piece, which at the time Tesco had made a, a decision and I think a commitment to the city at the time that they were going to roll out online grocery in, in every market they operated in, with the exception at the time of uh, India and the US. And so we went on to establish online grocery businesses in eight different countries. We established a number one market position in five of them, and we got it wrong in the others. Um, and you know, it's it's from those mistakes maybe that you that you learn the most. Um, but that was my my introduction to it. Um, and as a bit of a as a bit of a food snob, I guess um, I would say I you know I've always enjoyed the you know the the art of building that connection with consumers and food and the emotional connection with it, the provenance, uh, the health benefits of it. And, you know, trying to make help 
customers live more convenient, healthier lives is something that I, you know, I, I genuinely have an interest in. So um, that's what's maybe um, made me stick at, stick at it for this length of time. And you already said, so the Tesco days were, were some time ago now. I think from memory, you were in your international grocery, online grocery role between 2011 and 2015. Have I got that right? Correct. Roughly? Yeah. Yeah. What was it like to work on online grocery back in those days? Um, how how was that side of the business perceived internally? I it was you know, to be very honest, it was a really really productive time. It was there was a great buzz, a great energy, a serious commitment to it um, in terms of investment and spend. There was you know to be fair, there was a lot of foresight around the, the future trajectory of it. Um, and so I, I, you know, it was, I, I look back on it very fondly. It was a very, very productive um, and collaborative time. Now, naturally with, you know, the, what the evolution of Tesco and the, you know, the, the challenges it then subsequently went through in terms of maybe running a bit hot within the UK to fund international expansion, you know, decisions, different decisions had to be made. So it, it, it you know, maybe some of that um, passion and energy may have dried up a small bit for a period of time. But fundamentally, when you look at their business today, how they were able to respond to COVID and to the pandemic in the UK, how they were able to scale and optimize their business to the number of deliveries and, and collections that they were doing, you know, is a testament to the underlying foundations that they had in place uh, from, from many years ago. So, you know, I look back on it as a, as a very productive, uh, uh, benefit, beneficial time. And when you look back to those days, was there anything that we take for granted now within online grocery that you wouldn't have predicted anything that came as a big surprise in terms of how this market has developed that's an interesting question anything that came as a big surprise so the you know i think it's it, within tesco it was always within our dna to be very focused on the operational efficiency and the profitability of it um so I'm not sure if this has come as a surprise, but I think it, it you know, it's a, I describe it as a hygiene factor. You look at the different businesses today that have kind of sprouted up and have um, the, the upstarts that have, you know, generated huge amounts of money, huge amount of press are, in, are driving a lot of valuation, I say in inverted commas. Um, they don't, what they, in my opinion, what they don't have is the fundamentals, the sound foundations and the fundamentals in place. Um, so as I look back on, on my time at Tesco, what I think I appreciate is that we really were focused on making sure we had very sound fundamentals in place. We understood the metrics that were most important within the business. And, and we, we, you know, we were fairly focused on whether it was operational efficiency or the, the, the ability to acquire the right consumer um, to really understand that underlying health of your business. And, you know, I would fast forward to today, and I still think there's lots of bad practice in the industry overall um, that, you know, could, could benefit and learn from, from that kind of approach. And when you're thinking about bad practice in the wider industry, are you thinking primarily about some of the... Um, fairly toppy valuations we've seen around some of the, the startups that are in that space? Or is there anything else that you're seeing that you think um, perhaps is not as it should be? I, I think in the, you know, if I take a US perspective 
for a second. In terms of a US perspective, I think there is probably poor behavior in terms of customer acquisition. Um, I don't think that we're really fully understanding, you know, Barry's propensity to shop online and become a loyal shopper versus Julia's um, and where to invest in, in acquiring Barry and the lifetime value of him as a customer as he shops multiple different channels understanding the proposition or the mission that's most important to him and creating a journey, an online journey, or a, a, a multi-channel journey that is, you know, meets his needs and his family needs versus what a different consumer would need. And then, so I think that that's what I mean in terms of some of the bad behavior around the economics of acquisition within the space. Um, and then I think you know, what you've indicated and what you've referred to is, is the the inflated or the irrational exuberance around maybe some of the rapid delivery um, and quick commerce propositions and, and the investment. And I think, you know, when, when the dust settles or when, the, when we look through the ashes of some of them, what we're going to see is that an awful lot of money was spent irrationally on their acquisition campaign. Because, you know, lots of people will sign up to something if they get 20 bucks off, right? So, you know, acquiring customers and then presenting numbers of this massive acquisition that you have, this consumer audience that you have, unless it's relevant to how these people are living their lives, unless you're solving for a genuine shopping mission on an ongoing basis, I don't believe that there's a, a fundamental loyal base there. And we're going to talk about that space in a little bit more detail when we discuss your, your articles. But I want to just talk a little bit about your current role at Winshop. Just in broad terms, give us a bit of a flavor of what you do and specifically what Winshop is trying to do within the online grocery market. So Winshop, we're one of the I guess, you know, the early movers, I'll call it in terms of creating an online platform or an online capability for our standard grocery businesses to be able to offer a multi-channel offer to their consumers, whether that's pickup or delivery. So we're one of the early adopters in that. And, you know, and we have, you know, flourished and grown significantly as a result of grocers adoption of this. And it's not just, you know, the Kroger um, partnership with Ocado in the U.S., as an example, that was a catalyst. It's not just the Amazon acquisition of Whole Foods, but it is, you know, in large part, a, a COVID-driven catalyst, COVID-driven catalyst over the last few years. Um, so we're, we're an online grocery platform focused on helping grocers establish that platform, helping them build a sustainable P&L within their online grocery business. And for me, that is, you know, all of the tools, capabilities, whether it's recommendations, promotions, circular or flyer in the US, which is very, very pop, pop, popular and common, the, to that ability to be able to drive a very healthy basket, and then the ability to be able to fulfill and pick and optimize your pick path and optimize your uh, ability to pick those orders efficiently, your ability to orchestrate your delivery and your different delivery options, whether it's hub and spoke, whether it's lockers, whether it's deliver from store, deliver from warehouse, um, and then your ability to monetize your traffic as you grow and scale your business. So that below the line revenue that comes back in. So we provide our grocers with that ecosystem of capability to be able to build that, that baseline e-commerce business. And from there, they then have, you know, we, we've in partnership with us, we have the opportunity to go and do some really exciting things, whether it's, you know, nutrition and wellness advice or um, meal kits, meal planning, recipes, more personalization around AI, smarter substitutions. There's there's a world of innovation around the perimeter, I would call it, of, of that core fundamental sound business. 
And what kind of model do your clients typically use around delivery and last mile delivery specifically? Do they will they have partnerships with uh, third party delivery providers? Will they typically have the that capability in house? How does it work? It's it's a mix. To be quite honest with you, there's a you know I would say it's thirty percent have pri- what I call private fleet. Um, and doing that themselves, 30% of our client base, and then and probably the majority, um, um, but not quite the full 70, because there's a few that are just offering p- collection only or pickup only. Um, so I'd say it's, it's a reasonable mix. Uh, the US has tended to be more uh, leveraging direct uh, suppliers or last mile providers or DSPs. Um, internationally, we see retailers using their own private fleet a bit more. So it's definitely a, um, a mix. And that, I think that solution mix, I, again, we're, we're in the, in, it's still in the early days of an online grocery business. And what is that blueprint, right? Where does it settle? You, you, you open the conversation with where, where does it settle post COVID? And, or where is it going to be in 2025 or 2030? And so the, the operating model is still evolving. Um, so I think that solution mix um, is, is really important uh, for grocers to fix or to figure out what, what is ultimately the, the long-term blueprint P&L for an online grocery model. And I think you've anticipated my next question there. I suppose if that model is still evolving, we're not at a stage yet where we're able to say, actually, this is the winning model. And actually, the right way forward is to partner with a a last mile delivery provider or to not partner and build up the capability internally. Yes, I think that's fair. And with the caveat that, you know, there are certain best practices that have been established. There are certain baseline metrics or benchmarks that can be achieved, whether it's a picking cost and delivery cost, um, the ratio of same day versus next day that, you know, allows you to aggregate your orders and pick multiple orders maybe versus the same day where you're maybe not getting that opportunity. Um, so I think there's certain baseline metrics or capabilities that, um, you know, if I was starting out an online grocery business today, I would, I would put in place. But from there, from that baseline, we're definitely still in the place where we're, we're turning the levers and, you know, um, turning off profitability and tweaking our proposition, tweaking our offer to uh, and the fulfillment choices and the fulfillment options that we have for consumers, um, as well as the proposition mix. You know, it's not there's there's a different shopping mission for Barry who's ordering a box of dry grocery on a monthly basis versus Barry who's doing a you know a weekly top up shop or you know a, a weekly shop a weekly habitual family shop or somebody's doing a monthly top up or bulk you know bulk shop so there's different propositions within that as well and i think they have different service charges and different fulfillment models Now, we've been saying that we were about to talk in detail about rapid delivery for quite some time. So I'm going to take you on to uh, your first article that you've picked. This is from Grocery Dive and the headline is Instacart files confidentially for IPO. This briefly is news that Instacart has announced it's filed for a draft registration statement with the US Securities and Exchange Commission with a view to potentially float on the stock market later this year. Barry, Instacart is a name that many of my UK listeners will be familiar with to some extent, but it's a huge deal in the US. It fulfills a really important role within the online grocery ecosystem. What is it about Instacart that's become so important and so influential in the US? And therefore, why is this potential IPO so significant? 
I think it's become, you know, in some ways, maybe it's become significant because the U.S. online grocery market was potentially a bit of a laggard when compared to the U.K. as an example pre-COVID in terms of participation, in terms of um, retailer adoption, um, in terms of retailers having their own solution in place and their own ability to to acquire, retain these customers and offer that multi-channel proposition. So, you know, out of that gap in the market, you know, springs Instacart, which offers that offered at the time of, you know, an ideal and, and very convenient solution for, for consumers. And again, you know, grew significantly during the pandemic. It's become a prominent, uh, a prominent player in the U.S. kind of consumer psyche. It's become um, a prominent discussion topic at the board of, of, you know, most grocers out there in terms of whether they're, you know, it's friend, friend or foe um, and what is their right long-term strategy. Um, you know, I describe it lots of times as, you know, I think there's a number of grocers out there who took the, the path of least resistance, which was to effectively partner, you know, as Borders Books did with Amazon to partner with Instacart. Um, but, you know, that was at the risk or at the, um, the lack or loss lost opportunity of establishing that relationship directly with the consumer, being able to market to that consumer, understand how they, you know, who they are, what their shopping behavior is on, online, whether you could, you know, really the, the true test, whether you could acquire customers who never came to your store um, and whether by acquiring them online first, you could maybe get them to come into your store as well and create that true multi-channel shopper. And, and again, I think it's probably worth spelling out that if as a US shopper, I shop with Instacart, it's I go to the Instacart app and I'm yes. within the Instacart ecosystem. Correct. You're within a marketplace. And if you as the grocer then decide to not be an Instacart tomorrow, well, you know, Barry, the consumer, goes back to Instacart and Instacart is able to show you a different grocery store. And so, you know, is your loyalty in that case to uh, to Instacart or is your loyalty to your grocer? And, and how is, you know, Instacart's ability to be able to surface different retailers or different products and, you know, move Barry, the consumer, from, from one retailer or one fulfillment location? You know, if you think about it from an Instacart perspective, they don't really care where it's coming from as long as it's a fulfillment location. So what is their ability to be able to, to migrate customers um, through, you know, some targeted promotions or targeted ads? One of the points that the article makes, it also talks about Instacart having invested very heavily in its retail media capabilities recently, that digital ad uh, side of the business. And it's not alone in doing that. There's lots and lots of retailers are doing this, um, partly because it's very profitable and online grocery store in many cases not very profitable. So it's nice to be able to do something that um, has some half decent margins attached to it. From from an Instacart perspective, what is the significance of their investment in that retail media capability? Why is that being seen as such an important development? Well, it's you know the the challenge I think you know, and I, I talked you know a few minutes ago about fundamentals and foundations, um, and you know in the in getting the foundations right within your business, you you need to be able to understand what you're selling and, and where the margins are. And you know, I think some of the challenges for for Instacart in terms of their upcoming IPO is whether those foundations or fundamentals are in place, right? So you're you're effectively reselling cans of beans or reselling grocery, picking it from one store and sending it to a consumer. So like, are the you know is the margin are the margins there? Um, is the demand there? You know, what is the cost of acquiring those customers? How loyal are they? And what's the ability or the you know the potential for those customers to churn? So there's a challenge around that fundamental, and you know. 
around the perimeter of that online basket, then of course, what they're trying to do is they're trying to find, you know, as many earning opportunities or margin opportunities as possible. And then media is, is an incredibly important uh, part of that basket and that, that profit mix, I guess. Um, so at Winshop, for example, we, we, you know, we we partner with retailers to give them that media capability. They can either join a network and take and, and run that media network themselves uh, as a private marketplace, or rather join a public network where they get the benefit of the the broader audience and they get to t- take and share uh, take that revenue, uh, that media monetization re- revenue completely for themselves. When you talk to brands and suppliers about retail media investments, one of the complaints they will often uh, voice is a a lack of transparency or a lack of data and and solid analytics to help them understand what good ROI on, on this actually looks like. Is your sense that that's improving, not just Instacart specifically, but across the industry? Are we moving to a place where brands and suppliers can find it a little bit easier to see what they should be investing in and what good returns look like? I, I think so. I, I think the fundamental challenge in that has been data. Um, and, you know, again, as there's more investment in the space, it becomes more important and you know, the industry, I say, like, you know, cleans up the data that's available. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's a tech, I don't think it's a technical challenge in the sense that I, I believe the technology exists to, to pull it together. So really it, it, it's, it's effort and, and cleanliness of data. And by effort, I mean, like, do, do the retailers have the ability to merge all of their offline purchases with their online purchases and build that holistic and cohesive view of, of one of the consumer and the lifetime value? So I, I think the component parts exist. I think it's effort, time, effort, uh, you know, and, and the will to kind of clean up the data and to stitch these, these systems together. Um, we've, seen a, we've seen a big improvement in that, um, but you know, I have to admit it's probably with more, um, some of the, more of the larger operators in terms of have appreciated the necessity to get that data infrastructure into the right place. Now, I'm going to move you on to your second article, which is from Charged Retail. And the headline is Jiffy to halt grocery operation and become a dedicated software company. This is news, and I think it was first reported in the Grocer, that uh, Jiffy, which is a rapid grocery delivery service operating in London, or it was a rapid grocery delivery service operating in London, because it's now seizing all consumer-facing operation and changing its business to a B2B model. Basically, it's going to sell its software to retailers and other companies looking to launch their own rapid delivery service. And it's been doing that, this idea of quick commerce as service, for a few months already. It's got some clients already, and it's now pivoting the business to focus on that side of things exclusively. Barry, the background here is fascinating because Jiffy, like so many other rapid delivery operators, you know, had this fantastic story of investment and growth and expansion. They had all sorts of really interesting ambitions. They talked about own label products that they were going to launch. And this is obviously a massive change, a massive course correction which they say they're making in order to make uh, to to ensure the the business becomes profitable more quickly. Why did you pick this article? Why did this story catch your eye? So I guess I'm curious, very curious um, and kind of intrigued by the whole rapid delivery space. 
the massive influx of money, um, the you know the valuations that have been achieved, and kind of the and the the, the ultimately the change will drive potentially in consumer expectation or consumer behavior. So broadly, I'm always interested in that particular area. But then I, you know, I probably sit on this on the skeptical side of how do you do these businesses have the fundamentals in place, right? Do they uh, do they have the the capability to really scale and optimize this particular model? And I get I think about it probably in the lens of you know do have they the ability to scale and optimize that model vis-a-vis or versus a, a grocer who today has that physical infrastructure in place, has the proximity to the customers, has a sophisticated supply chain, can ship items you know uh, at a low cost around the country and get them to stores with in large cities, um, has frequency of visit that you know is unrivaled by any other retail vertical, and then has incredibly rich data about who those consumers are and how their you know their purchasing um, purchasing behavior. So vis-a-vis that infrastructure, what do a lot of these other rapid delivery providers have? And in some ways, in, in my mind, it's it, all they have is is a native e-commerce capability, a you know a, a pure play mindset around how they go and acquire consumers, how they build intuitive definitely intuitive consumer experiences and intuitive mobile apps to present different shopper journeys and shopper missions in, a, in, a, in an intriguing and exciting way for consumers um, but if a grocer can maybe marry you know their those foundations with um with that digital savvy and that digital capability then i think you know there's lots of opportunities for them to build a better economic moat around their customers and around their business um, so I've been intrigued by the area um, or the, the space. I've been intrigued by it as I think about it and compare it to, to grocers and what are the opportunities it creates for grocers to create these new propositions or leverage those assets. Um, and then I'm also, you know, um, to, to coin the phrase of the, or to, to, to use the pun of like these quick commerce rapidly pivoting to something else, pivoting to suddenly offering quick commerce to a grocer as a, as a service, you know, is a far cry from the multi-billion dollar valuations that have been achieved and, uh, you know, are being uh, circulated over the past number of months. Whenever we discuss um, rapid delivery models and, and some of the challenges around profitability and, and whether, you know, the level of investment in, in that sector is uh, proportionate, I suppose there are also questions around just how compelling this is as a consumer proposition. How compelling is the need for 20, 15, 10 minute grocery delivery? What's your view on this? Is there a genuine consumer need that should be fulfilled and we just need to figure out how to do that in a way that's profitable and scalable? Or are we also, or have have we perhaps been overestimating just how much genuine consumer demand there is for these delivery windows i think that if if in in a, in a number of grocers that we have today that are uh, you know offering what i'll call the standard online grocery service offering a full basket or a full selection or assortment a number of those grocers are offering that within a 2 hour window very easily right and even a 1 hour window and so you know, Barry as a consumer can access that full basket, that full assortment with a number of different grocers in a very short window today. What's the benefit of, you know, the two or 3,000 SKUs that I can get within a 15 or 30 minute window? Um, I, I'm not sure convinced that, that that is really, you know, um, it's really necessary. It's easy or easier in my mind for the, the grocer to say, well, I'm going to tailor my existing assortment I'm going to 
relook at some of my, you know, my operation or my store layouts, I'm going to put that assortment of SKUs in the back room. I'm going to offer, you know, on my existing site, a, an ASAP opportunity or a, you know, 30 minute opportunity. And I might leverage different last mile providers to fulfill it. But the, the, the incremental effort for a grocer to be able to do that vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, a GoPuff or a Gorillas or a Getter having to set up all of these different dark stores and the capital investment that's necessary, in my mind, is, is, is small for the, the existing grocer. So I, I believe there is a demand from a consumer perspective. I believe there is a shopping mission that you're solving for. I think it's about adapting your existing e-commerce offering to, to solve for those different shopping missions. If I just think about UK grocers here, you know, lots of them have partnered with some rapid delivery operators in, in various forms. Is that just about experimenting with that format, do you think, and making sure you understand that shopper mission? You've got a sort of front row seat to how consumers behave. Or do you see that investment and the fact they're offering these services as a sign that they do see longer term demand for that rapid delivery? I think they see longer term demand, but I think it's definitely a case of um, experimenting and being on the front row and getting a view of how it looks. What, what, who are these consumers? How often are they shopping? Um, what is the basket size? What is the the assortment mix? Uh, what's the level of repeat, you know, repeat customer? You know, where where are the drop offs? Right, where where does the churn happen? Why does the churn happen? The opportunity to to learn um, from that, you know, is 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 can't be missed. Um, so I, I think it's a it's a combination of you know re believing that there is a a need, um, there is an opportunity for them to service that need using their existing infrastructure, um, and therefore making sure they're taking advantage of of that learning opportunity because there's going to be consolidation in the space, right? Like we've already seen consolidation. There are going to be winners, and the winners are going to be the ones that have the the biggest scale. Um, Likely, they're you know the winners that have the the best drop density. So therefore, they're leveraging not just a grocery or supermarket um, as fulfillment centers, but they're you know they're in the restaurant business, right? So they're they're leveraging the drop densities associated with takeout and meal delivery, um, because that that's fundamentally you know where if you look at DoorDash in the U.S. DoorDash has a very, very good infrastructure of like a, a million dashers and 400,000 restaurants. So all of a sudden it's got, it's got scale, it's got drop density, it's got unit cost and order cost economics. Now, where's their natural growth? Their natural growth is into encroaching into grocery space because they can probably do it leveraging that, those drop densities and leveraging that infrastructure very efficiently. So you're going to see the exact same thing, you know, in terms in this consolidation and who ultimately the winners are. But those winners are fundamentally, to overuse that word, going to have to have those foundations and found fundamentals in place. And speaking about um, experimenting and, and looking at potential new models, this brings us to our final article. Uh, this is one I've picked and it's from The Times. And the headline is Co-op to bring back walking deliveries and reverse march of time. Not quite sure about the second part of that headline, but it's definitely bringing back walking deliveries. Um, basically to customers living close to 200 of its stores. You place an order online and if you live within a 15 minute walk from the store, then your order will be delivered on foot. And the idea is partly to offer 
rapid deliveries or faster deliveries in areas that aren't served by the big quick commerce players at the moment. It's also, at least the article speculates, uh, potentially a way to offer a more sustainable, lower carbon form of delivery for consumers who care about that. What I really liked about this article, and the reason I wanted to talk to you about it, aside from the fact that it's a little bit quirky, but it also suggests to me that we're starting to ask slightly more interesting questions about last mile delivery other than just how quick can you do it? Because by the time you're down to 10 minutes, as uh, some people at least have claimed, you really have nowhere to go. Um, and so it, it, we've sort of run out of interesting things to do just purely around speed. And I think looking at some of the experiments that the co-ops is uh, that co-op is conducting, whether it's walking deliveries, they also have a trial kicking off with delivery robots, suggests that they're just yeah we're starting to ask slightly more interesting questions around what true convenience and good value around quick delivery might actually look like. Barry, what did you make of it? Um, so I, I think hats off. Um, I. You know, again, to your earlier point, right? You've got to be in the front row here. You've got to be in the front lines. You've got to be trying different things. So I, I'm actually very impressed. Um, the there was a Bain study recently where I think you know a lot of the the rapid delivery providers because of their cost base, you know, are losing. I think it was you know losing twenty five dollars or thirty dollars on a twenty five dollar basket um, um, or twenty five pound basket. Um, and 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 the, the the forecasts are not particularly positive in terms of how that will really dramatically improve in a in a in, in this scenario. However, you compare that to co-op, they already have the physical infrastructure, they already have a solid business, they're already there serving those consumers. Um, how how great is it that when somebody turns up at your door, rings your doorbell, and hands you your groceries that you ordered from them like that? You know, in terms of building loyalty, in terms of building a sense of community, um, you know, it's it, that I think that's that's fabulous. Um, where where it goes or where you know how it evolves, whether it's e-bikes or whether it's you know these Starship robots that are passing your house every day at three o'clock, and therefore you know you can place an order. Um, like you know, there, there's there's opportunity for evolution, right? As we said earlier on, this is this blueprint doesn't doesn't exist, and so therefore I think you've got to be out at the cutting edge of it. You've got to be trying and trialing and and, and testing. You know, fail fast or you know fail often, but the this, I, th I think, is, is an interesting example. I think you're right. It does ask questions about, you know, the le leveraging your marginal cost increases of, of that local store, improving the community element of it. Um, you're driving, I'm, I'm sure, driving loyalty and repeat trips back to your store as consumers are kind of thankful and building that loyalty. Um, and from a, you know, a, um, a kind of a social responsibility perspective, it, it's a, it's a, there's a positive message to it. So I was quite... Um, quite encouraged by uh, the innovation and you know there, again as as we kind of come out of COVID and online participation of my overall business is bigger that's only going to drive more investment and more innovation in that space uh, to continue to find you know ways of lapping last year right whether that's you know we move past lapping 2020 and 2021 but like into 22 and 23 and 24 how are we going to continue to grow that um, and the uh, the market and the the operating model is going to continue to evolve Barry, we're out of time. If people want to connect with you, want to find out more about what you do at Windshop, what's the best way to do that? You can contact me at any time. You can send me an email or um, look at our website, which is www.windshop.com um, or reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'd be more than happy to, uh, to connect with anybody. Fantastic. Barry, thank you so much for coming on the show.
My pleasure. Thank you, Julia. It was great to chat to you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.